Good morning. I am honored to be able to open God's word with you this morning. I would love it if you would turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. And in just a little bit, we're going to cover the first eight verses of Hebrews chapter 6. Have you ever seen danger up ahead? There's, there's a warning. Maybe somebody's warned you of danger. Maybe you didn't see it, see it yourself. But you saw danger up ahead or you were warned about danger and you didn't heed the warning and you kept going. Has that ever happened to you? I'm about to share with you probably, it could be the most foolish thing I've ever done in my life, honestly. So I'm just going to tell everybody. But when, um, when my wife was pregnant with our first son, eight months pregnant, we were doing a road trip across uh, the northern United States. We started in, the, in Michigan and drove back to Tacoma, and we were driving across northeastern Montana. Now, if, if you don't know northeastern Montana, look at a map, and you're not going to see a whole lot. There's, north, northeastern Montana is about as desolate as you can possibly find in the United States. There's a Ritchie, Montana, which I was kind of excited to find out until there's, there's like seven people in Ritchie, Montana. So it really isn't all that impressive. But as I was driving across north, northeastern Montana, um, and again, look at the map. There's not alternate routes. There's one road, right? So if, if you can't go on this road, then you're stuck. And I had a destination in mind, and I didn't want to get stuck. So as we're driving, I see smoke ahead, and the field to my right, is, is on fire. And there's smoke coming across the road. Now there's a warning of danger. Don't keep going. But foolishly, 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 I did. I kept going. I didn't, I didn't want to turn around. I had a place to be in three hours. I had a reservation for the night. I, I did not turn around. I did not heed the warning. And I went to my own peril onto this road. Now, I, I couldn't tell you how long there was smoke on the road, because in my mind, it's, it's like 30 seconds. That might not be true. It might have been more like 10, but it felt like a long time as I drove through this. And you know the end of the story, because I'm here this morning, but it could have turned out differently. So I saw this, this, this danger ahead of me. I saw peril, and I should have known better. I should have turned around. I should have heeded the danger. I should have heeded the warnings. But foolishly and potentially to my own peril, my own danger, my own demise, I I kept going. And the text that we're going to look at this morning is, is like the smoke on the road. It's a danger. It's a warning. It's peril. Peril ahead. Don't take this lightly. The danger of apostasy. We're going to look at this passage in a little bit. But I think it will be helpful for us as we approach this text. This is a text that many people find a very difficult text that sometimes we want to wrestle with and force it into fitting into our theology. But before we do that, before we, we sit with this text, I'd like to review the book of Hebrews. I think it will help us. So the book of Hebrews has a dual focus. A dual focus. First, The author wants to impress upon his readers the supremacy and the majesty of Christ. We see this again and again and again, how Christ is greater than, greater than. He begins in chapter 1, how Christ is greater than the angels, that God has revealed himself in many ways in the past. He's revealed himself through angels, and that primarily he's thinking about the Old Testament law, as he says, was given through angels. 
And he's comparing Christ to so much greater. Christ is greater than the angels. The angels are called to worship Jesus, to worship the Son. And Jesus is the one who, who reigns supreme. He is, secondly, he is greater than Moses. That Moses served in God's house as a servant, but Christ as the Son. So there's the servant, Moses, and there's the Son, Christ. Who's greater, the Son or the servant? Thirdly, he is greater than the Levitical priesthood. So if you remember the, in the, the, the Levitical priesthood, the author of Hebrews makes the argument that they would offer sacrifices for their own sin before they offered sacrifices for the people. They had to offer a sacrifice for their own sin. And not only that, the once wasn't enough. They had to offer the sacrifice again the next year and again and again. But Christ, who knew no sin did not have to offer sacrifice for his own sin, and he offered a sacrifice once and for all. So this, this theme of the book of Hebrews, the supremacy of Christ, how Christ is greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the Levitical priesthood. But there's a second theme related to the first that he wants his readers to endure, to endure, to not turn back. Having been offered such a great salvation, they must continue in the faith, not turn around, not forsake it. Hebrews is full of encouragement about the greatness and the supremacy of Christ, but Hebrews is also full of, of warning about the danger, encouragement to persevere, but warning about the serious and dire consequences of falling away. There are five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. We're in the middle of the, the third one. And I'm going to go back to the first two, just briefly. And I think there's a pattern here in the warning passages that will help us to understand what's going on in this passage also. So Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. You don't have to turn there, but you could if you want to. But there's an exhortation. And so each of these warning passages begin with this exhortation. What does he want them to do? In chapter 2, listen to the son's message. He's just finishing comparing him to angels. So listen to the son. Because if you were, it was important to listen to angels. How much more important is it to listen to the son? And the, se the second part of the pattern here is a concern. The concern. The concern he has for his hearers here is of drifting. Lest you drift away and not continue, not persevere, not continue to grow and prosper. So exhortation, listen to the son's message. Concern is of drifting. Third, there's a historical precedent in the Old Testament. One of the challenges of the book of Hebrews to many is, because, is that the book of Hebrews assumes that you know your Old Testament. So throughout, it's referencing back to Exodus and Numbers primarily, and you're expected to, to pick up on his references. But there's this, the Jewish historical precedent here is the wilderness community at Sinai. So as you recall, um, God led the Israelites out of Egypt. He did so by signs and wonders, the, the, the ten plagues. And he brought perhaps the most powerful nation in the world at that time, the nation of Egypt, to its knees, Pharaoh to its knees, the God of Israel against the gods of the nations. And then he led them through the Red Sea, the par parted the Red Sea. He provided for them. And then they came to Mount Sinai, and Moses went up to the mountain and the Israelites made for themselves a golden calf. And they said, this, this led us out of Egypt. This is our God. Aaron himself helped make this golden calf. And they worshiped the golden calf. So they, they fell away. 
They fell away. They saw all these wonderful signs from God, but yet they, were, they did not continue. They were not faithful. And so then there's also this lesser to greater pattern. So the lesser to greater is the law was received through the agency of angels, but we received the gospel through, through the Son, through Jesus, who's so much greater than they. And then so consequently, there's lesser to greater consequences. The Israelites at Mount Sinai, they were killed. They were slaughtered by the Levites. But our consequence is eternal judgment. So there's this pattern, there's exhortation, listen to the son's message. There's a concern, the concern is drifting. Historical precedent, Exodus and Numbers, as we'll see later. Greater to the, less, uh, the lesser to the greater, angels and the son, and lesser to greater consequences, death, physical death, but eternal damnation. Eternal damnation. The second warning passage in Hebrews is Hebrews chapter 3, and it goes to the beginning of, verse, of chapter 4, verse 3. And the exhortations, there's many of them, but do not rebel. Be watchful of unbelieving hearts. Encourage one another. There's a, there's a call for the community to encourage one another. Let us feel fi- fear or failure of entering God's rest. Be diligent to enter the rest. So the concern is about having a sinful, wicked, unbelieving heart of turning away, of being hardened by sin, of disobedience. And the historical precedent, again, looking back to numbers, is of the the distrust and disobedience of the wilderness community in Kadesh Barnea. This is the community, again, they saw the plagues. They saw God bring Egypt to his knees. They saw God part the Red Sea. They saw God send manna from heaven and quail by night. They saw the fire, the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day. They saw all these things. God led them all the way up to the cusp of the promised land. And they did not enter God's rest. So the Old Testament, they didn't enter God's rest. But that was by disobeying Moses and not heeding Moses, who was God's servant. So how much greater is our danger if we don't listen to his son? So there's the lesser to the greater mediator, Moses to the son, the lesser to the greater consequences, condemned to die in the desert versus not entering into eternity. And then the last week's text, we had the beginning of this third warning passage. And the beginning of this third warning passage is for us to pay attention. It's the first part of this exhortation. Pay attention. The author is concerned that his readers have become sluggish in their spiritual lives. And he's afraid. He's afraid for their spiritual future. He wants them to move on to maturity and as he calls it, to solid food beyond the milk that is indicative of their spiritual childishness. So that brings us to our text this morning. In today's text, we receive a dire, serious warning, a dire and serious warning about the consequences of neglecting the great salvation that we have in Christ. There are two paths before us, two paths before the hearers, first hearers, of this text, continued faithfulness leading to endurance or disobedient rebellion leading to falling away and apostasy. And for the author and for the audience and for us today, this danger of apostasy is a real one and it should terrify us. This is, a, this is the smoke on the road 
And what are you going to do about it? You're going to keep going foolishly, or are you going to heed the warning, heed the danger, and turn back? I'd like to read the text. So if you, if you turned away from Hebrews chapter 6, go ahead and turn back. I'm going to read the first eight verses. Then I'm going to pray for us, and I would like to reread portions of the text as we move through it this morning. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible. It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God, to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned." Please pray with me. Father, I I thank you for your word. Father, I thank you that your word is true. I thank you that your word is sharp. It pierces to the soul. I thank you that in, in your word, in this text this morning, that you include warnings to us from your mercy and from your grace, for your care and your concern for us. Father, you you include these warnings for our sake and for our good, for the good of your people. Father, you know the hearts, I do not. But Father, I pray that your spirit will convict those who need convicting. Father, there are those in this room who are in, the dan- are in danger of apostasy, in danger of turning away, in danger of not inheriting the kingdom, of not entering the rest. Father, I pray that your spirit will work in their hearts, turn them back. Father, I pray for us. I pray that we, if we, you will give us the ability to have a, take an honest look at ourselves and our lives. Take stock. Father, I also pray for encouragement for those who need to be encouraged. I pray that the Spirit of God will remind those who are your children that they are your children, that, they will encourage, that you will encourage those who need to be encouraged. Father, thank you for this text. I pray that your, the Spirit of God will work in us as we read, on, read it, meditate on it, and ponder it. And we pray in your son's name and through the spirit. Amen. So the author of Hebrews says there, therefore let us move beyond the elementary doctrine. So this is again, this is part of that exhortation, moving beyond, continuing from last week's text, moving to maturity. The time has come to go beyond the basics that we can't remain forever as babies receiving milk, but we, we need to mature. The Hebrews know the basics, but they have a need for deeper knowledge, deeper understanding, and probably most important here, more enduring faithfulness, more enduring faithfulness. And these things we will do, he says, if God permits. He believes that they will. 
He believes that we will move beyond this. He doesn't believe that they will remain forever as babies. He's going to move on to the meat. In the next chapter, he's going to move on and talk about how Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's moving on to the meat. But before he does, he, he sees this need for his audience, for his hearers, and I think secondarily for us as well, to be warned about the danger of complacency, the danger of stagnation, the danger of drifting in our faith. So what are these elementary doctrines? At first glance, these elementary doctrines might seem to be the basics of Christian teaching. But I I don't think that they are. I think that these doctrines relate to um, Jewish beliefs and Jewish teachings. So understand the audience. So remember, the author of Hebrews is writing to a group of, of Jewish Christians, Jewish believers. And for a Jewish Christian, life as a Christian can be very difficult in the early church. So these would have been people who had grown up in the Christian community. They're outside the nation of Israel. So all the people that you know, all your family, all of your acquaintances, your, your people are Christians living in a pagan world. And you have come to understand, if you're in the Christian community, a Jewish Christian community, you have under, come to understand Jesus as the Messiah. And this, this leads to ostracization, it leads to exclusion, it leads to rejection from your community. You're being pushed out of this community that you've grown up in and that you've loved. And so as persecution increases and gets more and more difficult, there is the danger for you to go back, for the danger for you to give up and, and return to the elementary rather than what you know is true in Christ. And I think that's the danger that he's warning them. So there's three, three pairs, three sets of two um, teachings here, elementary doctrines. The first pair is repentance from dead works and faith towards God. You might think, oh, that means repentance from trying to earn your own salvation. But dead works here, the way it's constructed, more means repent from works leading to death. And faith towards God would be being faithful to the God of Israel. This is very similar to how Pharisees and Jewish people of the day would have um, described this. Repentance from works leading to death, from idolatry, and from sinfulness of the pagans. We're not going to do that. And we're going to have faith, faithfulness towards the God of Israel. This would have not been something uncom- un- an uncomfortable way of phrasing it for Jewish, uh, Jewish people who weren't Christians at the time. The second set is washings and laying on of hands. Some of your translations may say baptisms, um, but the, the construction of this word is not the way that baptism is, is usually phrased in the New Testament. Also, it's in the plural. So we're not talking about Christian baptism, at least not exclusively. You might be talking about the difference between Jewish baptism of purification, the baptism of John the Baptist, and maybe perhaps how Christian baptism is different. But the, the washings or baptisms, he's not necessarily talking here about Christian baptism. And laying on of hands has to do with ordination and also praying for the sick, practices that were common among Jewish people. And the last one here, resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, you might again think, oh, resurrection of the dead, that refers to Jesus' resurrection. However, even though the translation I read had the article there, the resurrection, Um, It doesn't have the article in the original language. And of the dead, the dead there is plural. It's not dead singular. So this is resurrection of the the dead before the judgment. 
something that a good Pharisee, a good conservative Jewish person would have accepted. So all six of these foundational teachings, he's not talking about foundational Christian teachings. He's talking about what they have, what they have learned as good Jewish people that is true. He's not urging them to, move, to reject it. It's moving beyond it to understanding more serious, glorious truths about Christ. So there's a moving beyond your old context. It's not a moving beyond foundational Christian doctrines, but moving from where you've been to, to where you are going. So these elementary teachings are beliefs and practices of early Jewish, preaching, teach, early Jewish Christians that although important, he's not rejecting them, although important, they don't reflect a knowledge of the person of Christ and his work which is where he wants to lead them. That's where we're going in the rest of the book of Hebrews. There is nothing on this list that would not have been typical of a Pharisee, and the basic beliefs or practices of the Jewish faith. But the author wants them to know Christ. He wants them to know Christ. He doesn't want them to stay where they are. He doesn't want them to regress. He wants them to move further up and further in. And this we will do, he says, if God permits He's going to move there. He knows they're going to progress. This is, he is confident that they're ready for more mature food. So I want to turn now to verses four through six. And if you, again, open your Bibles if you have them. And I'm going to reread these verses. Again, these are verses that oftentimes we try to fight with almost. We argue with them. We wrestle with them. We want to force them into our theology. But I would urge you to, to listen to God's word and hear it first before we try to fit it into our theology. So, verse 4. For it is impossible, it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding him up to contempt. Now, systematic theology. So systematic theology is understanding of who God is, understanding of who Christ is, understanding of who we are in Christ, understanding how we're saved, understanding of what sin is, understanding of the church and of eternal salvation and, and things to come. Systematic theology should be sourced in the text. And I think there's often a danger with difficult passages like this that we take our theology and we try to force it into the text to the point that to the point that we don't hear it. We focus on what it's not saying rather than what it is saying. And I think that what this text is saying is important for us to hear. It's important for us to heed. So thinking through this same structure with the warning passages, the first is the exhortation. Let's move on. Move on to maturity. The second, the concern. The concern here is the danger of apostasy. He doesn't fear that they've reached this point yet. He's going to say that in the verse after my passage, that they haven't arrived at this point yet. He hopes and believes that they will endure till the end, but he feels the need for them to hear this warning and to heed it. So this word impossible, impossible, as I reflected on it early, thought, well, maybe Maybe this is hyperbole. You know, like Jesus, it is impossible for a rich man to enter heaven. 
And what he means is, it's it's impossible with humans, but with God, all things are possible. Perhaps that's the way the author of Hebrews is using this word. But the more I studied it, the more I I came to the conclusion that can't be so. The way that the the author of Hebrews uses this word, it means impossible. So this is the first of four times it's used in the text. So here, it is impossible to renew those to repentance. Hebrews 6.18, it is impossible for God to lie. He doesn't mean it's almost impossible. He doesn't mean in most circumstances it's impossible for God to lie or that I think it's impossible or it seems impossible. No, he means absolutely it is impossible for God to lie. Hebrews 10.4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Again, this isn't mostly impossible or usually impossible. It's absolutely impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to save you from your sin, ultimately. And the, third, the fourth time, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And again, that's in every case. So I think when the author of Hebrews uses the word impossible, I think that's what he means. I think he means impossible. That's scary. <laughs> that's a terrifying word in this case. It is impossible so that's the concern, is of the danger of, hypo- of apostasy, the danger of rejecting Christ. And then the Jewish historical precedent, I think it's, it's the same one we've having throughout. He's thinking of Exodus and Numbers. He's thinking of this, this, these Jewish people who witnessed the works of God in the Old Testament. They saw the goodness of God. They saw the covenant-keeping God. They saw the powerful God. And they did not enter the rest. The lesser to the greater mediator in chapters 5 and 7, we're looking at Jesus as our high priest. So Jesus is our high priest. In contrast to the Levitical priesthood, where they had to offer a sacrifice for their own sin, and then offer that, the sacrifice every year again and again and again. In contrast to that priesthood, Jesus, who knew no sin, did not have to offer a sacrifice for his own sin He offered himself once and for all and never to be offered again. So if that's the lesser to the greater mediator, the lesser to the greater consequence in the Old Testament, that sacrifice was offered again the next year and the next year and the next year. But there is only one sacrifice that can save you from your sin. And if you reject that, you're in peril. You're in danger. You're heading into the smoke. So who is in mind here? Who, who is he talking about? Is he talking about people on the outside of the Christian community? Is he talking about backsliders? Is he talking about Jewish non-Christians? Who is he talking about? So let's, let's read through the list. Those who have once been enlightened. Those who have been enlightened. These are those who know the truth. So again, thinking of our audience, these are those Jewish believers who have grown up in Judaism and recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is who he claimed to be, that he's the one prophesied about in the Old Testament. They've come to the conviction and the knowledge and the understanding that he is who he says he is. Those, that's what I, that means to those who have been enlightened, those who have known the truth, those who have come to an understanding of who Christ is. Secondly, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have tasted the heavenly gift. Now, some think this means communion, and perhaps, but I think more likely it means that which is signified by communion. So 
there's a sense in which the Christian community now is experiencing the blessings of heaven beforehand. So in the new heavens and new earth, heaven comes to earth. There is no separation between God and his people. And we get, as, a, as Christians, within the Christian community, we get a preview of heaven as we interact with each other, as we enjoy the gifts of the Spirit. And this is, this is the idea of the Christian community being a preview of heaven. So the heavenly gift are they, these people who have participated in and enjoyed those blessings. Third, so they have tasted of the heavenly gift. They have become enlightened. They come to a knowledge of the truth. Those who have shared in the Holy Spirit. Those who have shared in the Holy Spirit. Now, I think our, our minds normally think of this, um, phrases like this individualistically. So we're thinking of it as individual and dwelling of the Holy Spirit. But I don't think that's what this means here. Sharing necessitates a community. So I think what the author has in mind is more what we're seeing in 1 Corinthians and in Acts as the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the Christian community results in gifts that bless and bind the community together. So they, these are people who have tasted of the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit. They've been blessed by this community. They've been in this community. They've seen the work of the Spirit. The next one, those who have tasted the goodness of the word of God. This is the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of God's word. These are people who have heard the truth, but more than that, they've heard the truth. They've known it to be good and have been blessed by it. And finally, and the powers of the age to come. Again, I see this as in the first century Christian community, the signs and miracles and wonders that were experienced by the the early church. God's miraculous dealings parallel to the signs of the of the in Exodus, of the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, the manna from heaven, the, the cloud and the pillar of fire. So who is being warned? This is not a warning to the outside. This is a warning to those within the church. This is a warning to those within the Christian community who may believe that they are children of God on the road to eternal salvation. And those who do not persevere... Those who do not persevere do not enter God's rest. Again, this is a parallel to Exodus and to Israel. Paul says in Romans that not all Israel is true Israel. Not all of those who wandered in the wilderness, not all of those who went out of Egypt with Moses are truly Israel. And I think we could say in parallel to that, not all those who are the church are the true church. Being a part of the church hearing God's word preached, sharing in communion, going to community groups, praying with other believers and being prayed for, having fellowship, being blessed by the Christian community and the gifts that God has given us does not necessarily mean that you will enter God's rest in the end. It does not necessarily mean this. The idea of crucifying again, what does that mean? Well, obviously, obviously the, the author of Hebrews doesn't mean that Christ can be re-crucified. That goes against his, the whole flow of his argument, that he's offered as a sacrifice once and once for all. So it's not the idea of him being crucified again, but it's the idea of, again, think of the community that he's talking about, Jewish believers, these people going back to their old ways. By doing this, they are agreeing with those who crucified Christ. They were agreeing with those Jewish people who rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And they, ha- they, they urged 
Pilate to crucify him. So they're holding him back up to be crucified by rejecting Jesus as the Messiah and going back to their old way of life, their old community. They are holding him up and saying it was right for him to be crucified. For those who do this, the author of Hebrews says, it is impossible to renew them to repentance. Verses 7 and 8, there's these two metaphors illustrating what he's talking about that I think will be helpful for us. For land that has drunk the rain, and I, I think this rain are those experiences that we've just been talking about. It is the truth. It is the gospel. It is the word of God being preached. It is the blessings of being in the Christian community, the blessings of God's spirit on his people. So those who have the, the, the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, this land receives a blessing from God. And I, I would see that this crop would be perseverance, continued faith, endurance through difficult and hard times. They produce a crop in the end that, that pleases God and receives a blessing. And I would see that as entering God's rest. But if it, this land, if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. I think there's a small, small, I think there's a small bit of comfort and hope in that word near. There is. The author of Hebrews is not saying, you're at this point already. But he's saying, come back. Don't go into the smoke. Turn around. You're near to being cursed. Be careful. This is serious. Not something to be taken lightly. It's not a game. You're near to being cursed. So a summary, what I believe is being taught in these verses is that the author of Hebrews is warning those who are in the Christian community, like those who were in the, the Israelite community, who had saw the wonders of God, experienced the goodness and bounty and gifts of God, that those who know the truth have participated in the blessings of the new covenant community, have heard the word of God, seen that the Lord is good, and then turn away and reject Christ, agreeing with those who have crucified him. The author of Hebrews is saying that they cannot be saved. It is impossible to bring them back. Now, returning to theology, I do not believe that those who are truly saved that those who are indwelt by the Spirit of God, that those whom the Spirit of God has made regenerate, those who are God's elect, I do not believe that they can lose their salvation. And the reason I don't believe that is that, praise Jesus, my salvation is not dependent upon me. It's dependent upon him, which is something that the author of Hebrews is going to go on to say, that the promises of God are irrevocable. So praise God that our salvation is not dependent upon ourselves. But perseverance is not optional. Perseverance is not optional. Those who are indwelt by the Spirit of God do persevere. I would see this as a mark of God's elect. But saying a prayer, going to church, participating in community group, being a, singing with God's people, being blessed by the outpouring of gifts among God's people does not in the end save you. 
the Christian walk begun, but not finished, is not a walk that ends in God's rest. And there is a danger, a very serious danger to be taking, taken quite seriously in being too secure in your salvation. There is a danger in being too secure in, our, in, our, in your salvation. The Bible says, Paul says, that we are to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, to examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. And perseverance is evidence of genuine saving faith. This text might be the means by which God preserves you. It might be the text that says, don't drive into the smoke. It could be that for you. Something else to say on the, the word impossible here. I don't think this means that those that often we call prodigals cannot come back to salvation or come back to a knowledge of the truth. I'm sure there are some people in this room today that have at times wandered and drifted and not participated in the Christian community, not participated, not prayed, not worshiped God, gone your own way, and God drew you back. The story of the prodigal son, which I'm sure you know well, is evidence that, that, that there's no, nowhere you can go that's too far for God to reach back and grab you and to save you, that God cares about prodigals. But there is a point that if you harden your heart and you harden your heart and you reject the truth and you don't heed the warnings and you don't turn back and you harden your heart again, there is a point of no return. There is a point where you could go too far. And I would say, oh, perhaps only God knows where that point is. But it's not something to play games with. It's something to take seriously, to heed. There will be a point where, they, where someone who continues to harden his heart will not and even cannot be saved. So the point of this text is be careful. Don't keep going. Turn around. So the story I told at the beginning, you know, I was preserved. I wasn't preserved because I turned around. <laughs> I was preserved out of my own foolishness by pure grace. God preserved me. But there really was a danger. There really was a danger. And the danger I went into was a, perhaps I won't make it out. There's a danger in which you could keep going and not make it out. It'd be too late, too far. Another story I want to tell you for your benefit is on my road trip on a road trip I took last summer we went to the Grand Canyon and on the Grand Canyon there are some spots where you could fall a long 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 ways and I had a son I still have a son thankfully but I I had a son who did not fear heights at all. And there's a part of me that was proud of him for his, his bravery and his courage. But the more overwhelming feeling was not pride. It was fear. And I remember this point where there's this precipice that went out and there's these young guys in their twenties daring each other to walk out and out goes my seven-year-old son. Oh my goodness. So I had to go on this spot with the wind blowing and thousands of feet down to pull him back and say, no, we're not going that way. We're not going that way. And I, these two stories I hold up to you for your, your benefit. One, you might be the one who's driving into the smoke 
That might be you. And you need to turn back, examine your heart, take stock of your life. Take this seriously. Again, this might be the means by which God in his grace, this text could be the means by which God in his grace preserves you from driving into the smoke. But perhaps, perhaps there are people in your life and in your circles who are the ones driving into the smoke. And the Christian community doesn't just watch people drive into danger and like, oh, that was stupid. The job of the Christian community is to go out and grab them and pull them back to let them know their danger and their peril. That's our job as the Christian community. So perhaps your application of this text is to examine yourself and to turn back from going down the wrong path. But perhaps your, your job with this text is to do what the author of Hebrews is doing and to warn others, to grab them, to pull them back from the brink. The Christian walk is a journey that is going somewhere. We are not called to be static in our faith. We should be and should see progression. If we find ourselves stagnant or regressing, it is time for us to take serious stock of ourselves and our faith. The Christian ought to find rest and assurance of our salvation because we know that we are in the hands of a sovereign and loving God. But we need to be wary of false assurance of false assurance, faithful church attendance, participation in the life of the church, something you did when you were seven, is not necessarily a guarantee of salvation. Not necessarily. The warning passages in Hebrew should be taken seriously, heeded, responded to. The purpose of these texts is to help us to, preserve, to persevere. But how do you have assurance? Because I believe that's important too. I don't, I don't believe that... Um, the, the Christians should always be in fear, always be trembling, always be afraid. I don't know if you were like me when you were young, always wondering if I'm truly a Christian and say the prayer my 492nd time. But how, how, do we have, how do we have assurance? Well, one, one way we have assurance from Scripture is the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, the fruit is the, the results of the indwelling, the results of the work of the Spirit in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Is there evidence of these things growing in your life? Are you growing in love and joy and patience? Not, not exhibiting it perfectly all of the time, but are you growing in love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control? Another way we have assurance, Romans chapter 8, Paul, said, Paul writes this, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery, to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoptions and sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, and the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The the Spirit of God assures us, bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellows heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. I would see that as that we're enduring and persevering so that we may also be glorified with him. So another source of perseverance is to go to the Spirit of God, to pray and ask God to assure you that you are his child. Are you seeing progress and maturity and is the Spirit of God comforting you, encouraging you, reminding you that you are the Spirit of God? So two responses this morning. One, take heed, take stock 
Look at your life. Seriously. Are you, do you see evidence of the Spirit of God working in your life? Are you in danger of the sin of unbelief? Are you in danger of, of driving into the smoke, of continuing down a path from which there may be no return? You have to answer those questions honestly. The other, other response is to warn others, to grab others and pull them back from the brink. That's the, that's the job of the community, the Christian community God has called us to do. Please stand with me. would love to pray for us. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the, the grace that is inherent in this, this warning for us to, to, to turn around if we're going the wrong direction, to turn around if our, our, not just our lives, but our souls are in peril. And God, it's, it's not my work to convict hearts, but it is the work of, the, of your spirit. So Father, I pray that those who need conviction this morning, those who who need to be uncomfortable this morning. I pray that your spirit will work in them and convict them. Father, there might also be those in this room who are your children, who, don't, who are not assured. But Father, I, I pray that your spirit will comfort them, remind them, tell them that they're children of God, that they belong to you. Father, if there are those in our lives and those around us, those in our circles, who it is our job to, to pull back and warn, Father, I pray that you'll bring those people to mind. Help us to love others enough to have uncomfortable conversations, to say things that are perhaps true but uncomfortable. Father, give us the courage that we need to do that. Father, thank you for your people, and thank you for the gifts and the the blessings there, there are in Christ with your church this morning. I thank you for drawing us together. I thank you for what you have done in, the, in our lives, the lives of your people, and what you're going to continue to do to protect us and preserve us. We need your help. And we pray in the name of Jesus and in the Spirit. Amen.